Let's turn to Romans, please. I wanted to remind Pastor Brown that it's now fashionably okay to wear brown shoes with a blue suit. Item one, we want to have an opportunity to announce once again another opportunity for Tetelestai Church to demonstrate generosity and the fruit of the Spirit called goodness, benevolence, because the month of May is our annual food drive for Salvation Army, and the list of items is on the table, the information table out there. It's very good to be back with all of you. It's kind of almost overwhelming, so I'm taking my time here. I also want to, item two, thank the speakers in my absence, and that includes Phil, Craig, Brian, Emery, and I understand Pauletta had a stint too. It opened, Pastor Brown opened with speaking of your message. There was unfiltered exhortation, energetic evangelism, prophetic proclamation, didactic clarity in all the messages. And all the speakers were united by one unifying chord, and that is that they were controlled by the love of Christ. And they are controlled by the love of Christ because... They have discerned, as Second Corinthians 5.14 says, as many, if not all of you, have discerned, that if one died for all, then all have died. And therefore, the word of the cross. All of our messages have at the very heart a lamb that's been slaughtered and standing again in resurrection, as we'll show again today in the message. And the third item is this, and they're here today. I want Dave and Katie, Tom, please, you have to stand for me just this one time, and I want you to applaud for them. They're the first contact I had in the ministry of this Word of God here, 1978, and it was courtesy of Dave that My first trip down here was in a five-passenger plane in a nice little pressurized cabin from Pittsfield, Massachusetts to Indiana Airport, and then Dave and Katie hosted us in their home for hundreds of Bible studies, probably, and that's what got everything started back in 1978, November, and I always remember the somewhat panicking look of the pilot when I think of trying to land in the fog in November. Only for a second, though. He was only panicky for a second. No, he, was, he did an excellent job. And the fourth item, I want to thank all of you for your constant attendance on the Word of God. And this leads into a very happy Mother's Day. And Jesus transform the idea of motherhood in the kingdom of God in the present age by removing it from the realm of biology altogether, even though that still, of course, is an important factor, by saying, who is my mother? And he said, she who attends to my word, to the word of God, and observes it and keeps it. And therefore, a new definition of mothers and brothers and sisters exists as a new definition of all things exists in this new age. But we're still at the juncture of a new age, and the old age is passing. So the time in which we live is a time of clashing ages, a time of flesh versus spirit, a time of old versus new. And therefore, our experience in this life is both pain and grace, both crucifixion and resurrection. We live at the juncture of the ages in which some are perishing in time, others are being saved, 
through the word of the cross in time, awaiting that time when all will be saved in the experience of all humankind and in the emancipation of all creation. So I want to have a Mother's Day view, a forward Mother's Day view. While I was away, while Pam and I were away, I had a, an opportunity at the first part of every day for several hours to study theology, which is my main thing in life. And I had profound engagement with one of my dear friends in theology, whom I've never met yet, Jürgen Moltmann. And I want to begin today's message by what I call a forward Mother's Day view. Now, I don't want to be too technical here, but he makes this statement in his phenomenal book called Son of Righteousness Arise in 2010. He says, identity lies in the simultaneity and diachronic sum of a whole life. Now, that means, of course, all at once, we are what we are from the cradle to the grave in this life. We are all those stages at once. In resurrection, we will be all those things at once and more. And this is a forward view because my direction of my teaching here is going to be that in Ephesians 1.10, in the summary of all the times, of all the ages, all things will be summed up in Christ. And that means that he not only redeems every person, but he redeems all the times in which all persons have lived, all the times in which creation has existed, all of the historical eons, all things in all their times will come into a simultaneous moment and be redeemed. He redeems time as well as creation. And to illustrate this, Moltmann cited what he calls an illuminating analogy that he found in a writer, a German writer named M. Welker, W-E-L-K-E-R. And he asked this, Who was my mother? And he answered this way, The little girl on the yellowing photograph, the young woman with me in her arms, the anxious wife, the frail old lady. She is all of this and more. He saw his mother in the diachronic or the total span of her life. And all those things is what she was, a little girl, an anxious wife, a caring mother, an older frail lady. All of these is her. And God sees that, the simultaneity of a whole life lived. And he redeems us in our totality as he redeems all the times. In the fullness of times means at the sum total of all times, Christ becomes the sum of all things. He sums up all things in him. And that's where we're going. Ephesians 1.10 is the great signal verse for our future. But our present concern is this, again, and I hope you'll indulge me, of all the hours of study I put in, this paragraph struck me most emphatically. And it's, again, Jürgen Moltmann. And he writes about a theology of grace, and that's my title today, a theology of grace in Romans. Every theology of grace tends toward universalism, he says because it issues, for God's sake, in the triumph of grace. Every theology of faith tends towards particularism, because it starts from the decision of the believer, and hence issues in the separation of believers from the unbelieving. The theology of grace makes us humble he said, and unites us with all human beings. For God has consigned all men to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. And in parentheses, he has Romans 11.32. Then he goes on to say the theology of faith, in contrast, which we studied last week in Romans 10, 
6 through 17, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whenever it was. The theology of faith, in contrast, is in danger of self-righteousness on the part of believers toward unbelievers because the difference between them depends on the human beings themselves. These traditional differences can be surmounted if the salvation of the world is seen in the universal glorification of God. We have that, of course, in Romans eleven thirty-three to 36. And in the closing verse, Romans sixteen twenty-seven. And if it is theocentrically orientated, centered in God, not anthropocentrically centered in man. That paragraph gripped me more than any of the paragraphs I read, and I read a few hundred of them. A theology of faith, therefore, this is me now, towards particularism, starting from the decision of the believer and issuing the separation of believers toward the unbelieving, is outlined in Romans 10, 6 through 17. Paul gives it a voice. He says, the righteousness of faith speaks this way. He's saying as much as Lonergan, or as Moltmann said, he's saying as much as to say, a theology of faith speaks like this. And then when he gets to 10, 18, he takes over and says, but I say, when Paul began to speak, he spoke as he always spoke with the theology of grace, a theology of grace tending toward and even encompassing universalism is outlined, for example, in Romans 3.23 to 24, all sinned, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God being rectified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Rectified by the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. His atoning, redeeming, reconciling, propitiatory death. The word of the cross and the theology of grace. Romans 5, 15 to 21, we've studied in some detail, both under the title of Better Call Paul and Romans the Epistle, and corroborated by Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, in which Paul includes the human act of believing as a work by which a person is not saved. For by grace you were saved, and keep being saved. through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, a faithfulness that is not your own and not of works. And by saying not of works in Ephesians 2, 9, Paul made it very clear that that includes human believing as a work. And then he says, you are his workmanship. You are what he did. You are what he created in Christ Jesus. It's an act of creation. You had nothing to do with it except to be created in Christ Jesus. Being dead in sins, you are made alive. Ephesians 2, 1, 2, 5. So it should be inserted here that the human act of trustful believing is not eradicated in Paul's gospel. In fact, his whole gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations. So, We're not eradicating, nor is Paul's gospel, eradicating the human act of trustful obedience to God, of fidelity, of faithfulness to God. So I want to insert that very carefully here, that the human act of trustful believing is not eradicated by Paul's gospel, but it is shown to be elicited, ignited, if you want, or kindled by God's promise and brought about by the spirit of truth and is never in all of Paul's epistles, the cause or even the instrumentality of justification. Never. So in this connection, I've explored the phrase pistis Christu. This is our famous phrase, 
Pistis Christu, which we looked at very carefully in Better Call Paul, and again, we'll do it again in Romans, the epistle. Pistis Christu, the faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. That's a pivotal phrase. In studying this, again, in a profound engagement with another apocalyptic theologian, who is at the base of almost every other theologian's insights on the apocalyptic gospel, J. Lewis Martin. That's martyr with an N instead of an R, M-A-R-T-Y-N, J. Lewis Martin. I've seen him everywhere quoted, and so I finally got his book on theological issues in the letters of Paul. Regarding this, Pistis Christu, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, Martin captures the meaning and the implication of this phrase, seeing it as Paul did, seeing it as Paul did, as enveloped in the word of the cross. And he says this, the result of this interpretation of pistis Christu, and he defines what pistis Christu means, listen carefully to it, Christ's atoning faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ. It's not faith of which Christ is the object. We're going to see that we can look at the cross in two ways. As the object of our perception or as something that crucifies us and causes us to die daily and live daily. To have a cross. To take up a cross. And that's a radical transformation that happens to us now in the juncture of the ages in a time of pain and glory, trouble and grace, as we await the time of only grace, only mercy, only salvation for all. And we do await it. He said the result of this interpretation of Pistis Christu which again, above, he said, Christ's atoning faithfulness as on the cross, he died faithfully for human beings while looking faithfully to God. That's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He died faithfully for human beings while looking faithfully to God. He says, this, the result of this interpretation is crucial to an understanding not only of Galatians, that's where he did his hallmark work, but also of the whole of Paul's theology, W-H-O-L-E. God has set things right. I love this phrase because he captures it. That's why I engage with these men and women who have done their homework for decades and been led by the Spirit. He said, God has set things right without laying down a prior condition of any sort. God's rectifying act, that is to say, is no more God's response to human faith in Christ than it is God's response to human observance of the law. I hope you have that down. God's rectifying act, another word for justification and a better one, that is to say, is no more God's response to human faith in Christ than it is God's response to human observance of the law. Then he closed this little observation with, God's rectification is not God's response at all. It is the first move. It is God's initiative carried out by him in Christ's faithful death. Slightly later, Martin said this, and this is where faith comes in. To be sure, as Paul will say in Galatians 3, 2, Christ's faithful death for us has the power to elicit faithful trust on our part. The point is, that the Christ in whom we faithfully place our trust is the Christ who has already faithfully died in our behalf, confer with Romans 5.8, and whose prevenient death for us 
is the powerful rectifying event that has elicited our faith. This is why I'm glad in my experience in January of 1972, in the dead of winter in northern Vermont, when I understood for a flashing instant something that has taken me all those years since then to really comprehend, and I still don't. God saved, justified, redeemed, reconciled me before he even gave me faith. And he followed it with the gift of faith. This is an experience that I was never able to relate in two affiliations that I belonged to because it would have been disregarded or considered to be heretical because it was all an initiative of God followed by a gift of faith, have a deep and abiding faith. And so I was, if for one thing, you could never give that testimony and stand up before the crowds or your mentors and tell them that because they would say, no, either that doesn't happen anymore or wait a minute, you mean God did that to you before you even had faith? Wouldn't have worked. So in turn, and this is me again, this, I, that's all, all I've done so far is kind of like read the passages for today's message. In turn, then, this serves as an important insight or a lead-in to the interpretation of Romans 4. Namely, that this chapter is not a proof of justification by faith, which it's often taken to be. Romans 4 is often taken as a proof of justification by individuals' belief using Abraham. But, and this is a forward view, it is three things. It is, one, a proof that Abraham's faith without circumcision was considered by God to be rectitude or the right way to live after justification or after salvation. Two, Romans 4 is to be considered as a lead-in to the spiritual life of Christians in the present juncture of two ages. For our boastful confidence is in Christ Jesus. And we are to serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And we have no confidence whatsoever in the flesh, including physical circumcision. So three, Romans four teaches us that faith is shown to be that which is essential element of Christian living. It is that which pleases God. As says Hebrews eleven six pleases God and apart from which is only sin, which we'll learn in the midweek services in Romans 14, 23. So this is what's called in Galatians five, six faith, which works by love. You want to define the Christian life. It's a faith given to us subsequent to our salvation, which works by love. So the climax of Abraham's faithful trust, which was elicited by God's promise. Abraham believed God's promise that he would be given a son and the son would result in the seed in whom all the nations would be blessed with rectification. So in Genesis 22, eight, there was a climax in Abraham's experience. First of all, He offered his son, Isaac. And so the climax of Abraham's faithful trust, which was elicited by God's promise, was his offering of Isaac through faith in God's ability to raise him from the dead. As Abraham traversed that mountain to offer his son, he had faith, according to Hebrews eleven seventeen. He had faith that if he did offer his son, that he would be raised from the dead. But as he got to the top, he also had faith in the substitutionary, atoning, faithful death of Christ. Because when Isaac said to him, where's the 
sacrifice. Where is the animal for sacrifice? Abraham said, God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. Now, the strange thing happened then. He saw, after raising the knife and hearing the voice not to sacrifice his son, he saw not a lamb, but a ram in the thicket, a ram caught in the thicket. And he sacrificed the ram instead of Isaac. Is there contradiction there? No, there is no contradiction. The ram was the immediate sacrifice instead of Isaac. The lamb that Abraham predicted as a prophet of God was the lamb of God whom God would provide who would take away the sin of the world. Abraham was a prophet. God said that. He said that to Abimelech who was beginning to initiate to Sarah Abraham's wife, and he appeared to Abimelech in a dream. God did, Yahweh, probably in his full military garb, and said, you are a dead man in the dream because the woman that you're fooling around with here is a prophet's wife. And so Abimelech immediately repented. Of course, Abraham didn't tell him. So Abraham wasn't perfect. I know that's hard to swallow for some people, but he wasn't perfect. Romans 4 makes it sound like he is because it doesn't go into all those meanderings and wanderings of his faith. And there's a reason for that, but we'll get to that in Romans 4. But as a prophet of God, he said God himself will provide the lamb. And in saying that, Yahweh Yirah or Yahweh Jireh, he said, God himself is the sacrifice. For God gave himself in his son as God gave his son. So, more than that, Abraham then became a prophet of the action of God that would bring about universal rectification when he said God himself in Genesis 22, 8, will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. But a ram, ram, not a lamb, was found in the thicket. This is not a contradiction, but rather a means of pointing to the future provision of a lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Seeing Jesus, John the baptizer said, look, there's the lamb. There he is, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus said finished, we can now say it in a different way that John said it. The Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. It's done. The ram was offered instead of Isaac. The Lamb of God was offered to take away the sin of the world. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day, not Mother's Day, Messiah's day. In John eight fifty six, and he rejoiced. When did Abraham see Messiah's day and rejoice? Right here, when he realized he could spare his son because God would not spare his own son. How do we know that he didn't spare his son? You got to go to the geographical, topographical heart of the heart of Romans to find that because in Romans 8:32 God who did not spare his only son how much more will he not having given him over paradidomi for us all not freely give us all things guess what's at the dead geographic center of Romans the epistle a lamb slain slaughtered but standing in resurrection just like Revelation has a lamb standing after being slaughtered in Romans, Revelation 5, 6, and then 28 times through Revelation. Just like John's gospel has at its heart, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Just like 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, our paschal lamb has been killed. And then we see him in 1 Corinthians 15, not only raised, 
but ruling over all things and handing the whole redeemed creation and all of humanity redeemed to God the Father so that God may be all in all. At the heart of Paul's epistles is a slaughtered and then standing lamb, Christ, him crucified, him raised, him glorified. And there's new insight about why Jesus said to Mary, touch me not. Because there was a moment there. This is just something to intrigue you for the future, previews of coming attractions. He was raised, but was yet to experience the transfiguring glorification of his body. He was on the way to it. Some new insights are about ready to give birth here, so I'll uh, leave that for now. And you can say, ah. Jesus is the lamb that God provided for the whole world. It's as if 1,800 years went by and Abraham says, there's that lamb that Abraham was talking about. It's not a ram in the thicket that was the reason for the sparing of Isaac. It's the lamb of God that's the reason for the sparing of the whole human race because he didn't spare his son. There he is. There he is. What? You mean this man that is not strong-looking, this man who is not strikingly handsome, this man who is walking with a robe that's dirty from the ankles down because he's walking in the dirt like everyone else, this man who does not have a glow about him. You mean this man, Jesus, who looks just like every other man in Judaism at the time, he's the Lamb of God that will take away the sins of the world. Uh, Yeah, he's the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the whole cosmos. And he did it. This has a profound effect on my thinking somehow. This has a profound transformation on how I know things about people how I know things, how you know things. We're going to see this. If you think we've reached a climax with the understanding of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, you're wrong. We're on one of the little precipices on the way to the peak, but we'll never reach the peak until the parousia. So this leads me to think that our foundational question, I don't know if you remember this, was this, I said, are all of Paul's epistles at the closing of Revelation, do all of his epistles taken together constitute or form up an apocalypse, a striking revelation of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God and his universally saving significance? A strong affirmative seems to be building, a strong affirmation of that seems to be building as we study further and further. That's the question, and it's being answered. The question that I asked at the outset of Revelation is God's judgment so depicted throughout this whole book, so misunderstood, so misread. Is that judgment from God? Is that a retributive act of God, or is it somehow restorative, redemptive, purifying? And we answered that question, I think, very clearly that it was According to Acts 3.21, the restoration of all things, a judgment that's restorative, that's saving, that's redeeming, that's gracious, opening up a last judgment that is a gracious act of God in which the only thing he pronounces is acquittal for all. God didn't spare his son, not his son. He spared Abraham's, but he didn't spare his own. Now, this leads me to think that our foundational question as to whether all of Paul's epistles form an apocalypse of the universal impact of the cross of Christ can be answered with an affirmative. Now, if you want to bring a human response, and we all want to bring a human response, if you want to bring a human response into God's saving plan for man, for human beings, 
then it has to be Jesus Christ's human response to God the Father. His obedience and faithfulness to God to the astonishing and unlimited extent of death by crucifixion, which resulted in rectification for all humanity and for all creation. And his resurrection from the dead in Romans 4.25. Therefore, being justified by faith in Romans 5.1, this brings us into Romans 5.1. If we're talking about he was handed over, paradidomy again in Romans 4.25, for our sins, and that's the sins of the whole world, and resurrected for our justification, which was raised for our justification, is a backward look to his death. He was raised because our justification was completed in his death for sins. So if we see that as his death being the justifying thing, then Romans 5.1 can't be, therefore, being justified by our faith, we have peace with God. It has to be interpreted as, therefore, being justified by Christ's faithfulness, climaxing in his death, we have peace with God. So, I could say that today. Today, I never could before, but today I could say to an unbeliever, do you know that you have been justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and have peace with God? You'd say, what would you be doing by doing that? Uh, Preaching the gospel. Okay. Another shocker. Let's back up. Back Off a little now, Rick. Okay, I will. He's talking to himself. It's true. He's nuts. It is true. It is true. I'm crazy. So I'll say with Paul, please indulge me just a little bit in my craziness. 2 Corinthians 5.12. Because then you know what he did? He got so crazy. He said, I'm nuts. So indulge me. And he got so crazy that the next thing he said after 5, 12, and 13 is, because you see, I discerned this, that if one died for all, then all died. Does that make me crazy? And therefore, I'm now controlled by the love of Christ. And so if any person is in Christ, and they all are, then there's a new creation in formation. Am I crazy to see that we're at the juncture of two ages, one that's passing away and one that's come in in the Christ event but has not yet culminated in the emancipation of all creation in all of its times? Am I crazy to think that way? Or are you in need of being a little more crazy? Wasn't there a song by Seal about that? We all got to get a little crazy. I don't know. Anyways. Therefore, being justified by faith in Romans 5.1 has to be understood as rectification by Christ's faithful death. Romans 4.25. Romans 3.25, by his blood. Also known as his blood. Romans 3.25 Romans 5, 9. Therefore, being justified by his blood, the climax of his obedience, the bloody death of the cross, how much more will we now be saved or delivered from wrath through him? From this wrath that this teacher has threatened everyone with. Also known as Jesus Christ, one righteous act. In Romans 5.18, by his one righteous act, all are justified. All, all means all. Also known as Jesus Christ's obedience in Romans 5.19, by his obedience, all are made righteous. So if you want to talk about our faith, do you want to talk about our faith? I do. I, I have faith. You want to talk about our faith? Then consider David W. Congdon's statement. He said, Christian faith is confident hope in the effective promise of God. That's a pretty good definition. 
Or he also said this, and this is clarifying too in his book, The God Who Saves. Quote, faith is not the condition for one's reconciled status before God. The status is determined in advance in Christ. Faith is rather the condition for one's correspondence to this status. Or how about Ernst Kasemann? He said, faith being the ability to stand outside oneself and before God. What a gift. Have faith as a gift. Why? So that you can stand outside of your anxious, fretful self. Before me, says God. That's faith. If you make it the the means for justification, you take all the fun out of faith, all the power out of faith, all the wonderful, glorious reality of the gift of faithful trust in God, which is the only way we stand outside of ourselves. Standing outside of ourselves cures every mental ill. But we're not always out of ourselves, are we? This is not the age already having fully come. We're living in the juncture of the ages. Let's be easy on one another because we're not always lacking anxiety because this is the juncture of the ages. God has chosen you to live and me to live in the most extraordinary conflicting time. In a time in which the whole church is called to resist, not the powers of politicians, but the power of sin and of death and of hopelessness and of despair and of, yes, the devil himself. Our enemies are not flesh and blood. We do not resist other people. You want a revolution? Then be in the revolution that started with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You say you want a revolution. Well, I heard all about that at the University of Vermont in the 60s. And it was all about the greening of America. And let's not be like anyone else, said 50 hippies wearing the same farmer jeans, the same hairstyle, and the same smell emitting from them from lack of of hygiene. Let's not be like anyone else, said all 50 who are exactly like one another. You want to not be conformed to this age? Then present your body, which is your whole being in this entire juncture of the ages to God, and he will transform your thinking out of thinking in terms of the passing age into thinking in terms of the coming age, out of the anxiety of a passing age into the peaceful knowledge of God of the age that has come with Jesus Christ. That's the transformation of our thinking. And that's where, at least in my observation, very few Christians are really thinking in that transformed way. Some are thinking as if the whole age has already come. The enthusiasts, capital E in Corinth, thought they were already reigning. Paul said, no way. And it's not all the way here, but we're in the juncture. That's why we have tribulation. That's why we have trouble. That's why we have pain. But the troubles of this present age, this present juncture of the ages, aren't worthy to be compared to the glories that follow. Now, if you want to talk about our faith, then consider the best definition I've ever heard, better than any theologian, really, was the theologian who wrote of Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the conviction of unseen things. And it's the assurance of hoped for things. God doesn't say you'll be justified and saved if you have a conviction of unseen things. I'm trying. I will save you and justify you if you have the assurance of hoped for things. Really? 
I'm deemed, I'm doomed then. Doomed and damned. Jesus Christ coming into this world was also this, the advent of faithfulness, saving faithfulness. If you read Galatians 3.23 and 3.25, you see that the coming of Christ equals the coming of faith, justifying faith. In other words, Jesus Christ is justifying faith. And here's another thing for the future, for the previews of coming attractions. Guess who got justified? Jesus did. First Timothy. Remember I said in the first message, the Timothys are going to come and interpret some stuff here. God who is manifest in the flesh was justified in the spirit. Justified in the spirit. What does that mean? It means Jesus Christ was justified. Because he was condemned by men, both from Roman law and Jewish law. He was condemned by the flesh, but he was made alive by the spirit. God, spirit, making Jesus alive was the justification of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ was justified, he's the righteous one. Guess who got justified with him? Everybody. Five words, everybody. So, Galatians 3, 23 and 25, Jesus Christ coming into this world was also the coming into the world of saving faithfulness. Christ is the faithfulness by which we are rectified. Christ is the faithfulness by which we are rectified or set right, made right. God has made him to be for us righteousness. Who made him to be sin? God. Who made him to be our righteousness? God. 1 Corinthians 130, 2 Corinthians 521. Paul's still nuts there. He's still crazy. Because remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, I'm crazy. Bear with me in my nut- nuttiness, said the nutty apostle. Somebody should do a movie called The Nutty Apostle instead of The Nutty Professor. And if I didn't have, if, if I was an actor, and I'm not, and if I could act, and I can't, and I wasn't teaching the word, but I'll never not be, I wouldn't mind playing Paul in a movie. You'd say, but Paul was young. Yeah, he was once, but he also was old. In fact, he probably died at around age 67 or so. I would like to play old Paul in a movie. You say, but you know what? That's one unfulfilled desire I got to live with in the juncture of the ages. I would love to be Paul dictating Galatians. Or Paul's 2 Corinthians 5 saying, Bear with me in my insanity. I got some things to tell you. God was in Christ reconciling the whole world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. God made him to be sin for us. You're crazy, Paul. Well, then join me in my craziness. (laughs) All right. See, I started slow. I'm going to try to keep pace here. So the bottom line is this. Christ is the faithfulness by which we are rectified and by which all that is wrong, everything that's wrong, under the superhuman power of sin, under the superhuman power as the, of the law, which is hijacked by sin, under the superhuman power of death, the suprahuman power of death, and the devil and principalities and powers, All that was wrong under those powers is made right, and Christ is the faithfulness that made it right. In no case is our faith the means or the reason for our justification or being set right. In every case, Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. So after looking at Abraham and Hebrews 11, like we look at Abraham in Romans 4. 
after looking at Samson and after looking at Deborah and after looking at Sarah and after looking at all the so-called heroes of the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews 11, he says, now let's look away from all of that and all of them unto Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith, meaning in every case. He authors it. He perfects it. He brings it to perfection who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of the Father. You haven't yet resisted unto blood, have you, against sin, the superhuman power, like he did? So in closing, in every case, Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. And in every case, our faith is elicited, kindled, ignited in us, and gifted to us, following our rectification. So in Romans, Paul presents us straight and straightforward. He's not only straight in his argument, but he's very straightforward. What seems to us to be wanderings here and there are part of his straightforward argument. All the way through, he presents a straight and straightforward argument all the way through with a profoundly unifying effect. Joy and peace in believing, it's called, which is the effect of the obedience of faith. The last verse in what was called the main body of this epistle is Romans 15, 13 that you may all have peace and joy in the believing. Believing will lead you to peace and joy, not the justification. You've already got that. The believing is what you have the development of peace and joy. And that's the kingdom of God in your experience in Romans fourteen seventeen, And he also says, may the God of hope cause hope to overflow in you. By the Holy Spirit. Faith is the assurance of the hoped for summary of all things in Christ. Even as my mother was, in my view, the prettiest girl in her class when I saw one of her old class pictures, even as my mother was the young mother who was looking at me in the snow as I was being mischievous, the picture in Hoosick Falls, New York, even as my mother stood next to my father as a beautiful bride, even as my mother was the mother who retired to Florida with my father and enjoyed 30 years of life with him and with us, that same woman is my mom all the way through. That same woman who became elderly, but still joyous. Look at a photo album and see all those stages. It's all one person. Look at human history in all of its stages. It's still one history, all redeemed in all of its times and summed up in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's pretty good news. And so Paul's gospel It's as if through his gospel, God is answering Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, and I are one. The Romans' argument is logically and lucidly presented by Paul. It's not confused or scatterbrained like some theologians have charged Paul with being confused because they don't know when he's speaking and when he's not speaking. When he gives voice to opponents, they think that's Paul. If that's Paul giving voice to his opponents, if that's Paul, not his opponent, then he is really classically mixed up, but he's not. The Romans argument has a heart to it. At the heart of his argument is the Lamb of God in Romans eight thirty-one to 32. If God is for us, says 31. Who 
can be against us. What power? Death. Life. Things that go on in life. Things that happen at death. Accusations. Our society is riddled with accusation today. Riddled with it. Mutual hostilities and accusations. But does that separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? No, it doesn't. Does it separate those who are accusing? No, it doesn't. Christ not spared, but handed over right at the heart of Romans. Christ not spared, but handed over to absolute death for all. God is for us in that way. You tell me. You tell me what can be against us. God freely handed over his son in similarity and dissimilarity with Abraham's offering of Isaac. That's what Romans 8.32 is pointing to. Again, in Genesis 22.8, Abraham told Isaac, God himself will provide the lamb. And that means God himself has provided the lamb, which is himself in his son. He has not given us his son as if he is Abraham, a human father, and he gives his human son and allows his son to go under the knife and stands back even in grief. No, God the father was in Christ during the crucifixion event during the passion, during the crucifixion, during the cry of dereliction. My God, my God. It's not as if God handed him over to be brutalized. And God was justified in that event too. God is justified in justifying ungodly people. Because he gave himself in Christ and he gave his son. And his son wasn't just like Isaac innocently being brutalized and handed over. The son knew exactly what was going on and his divine and human will were both irrevocably tethered to the father's will to save the whole human race. So in Galatians 2.20 it says he loved me and gave himself over for me. Gave himself over for me. So it's not merely that God handed Jesus over to be unspeakably brutalized and to die in hopeless shame, which he did. He did die in hopeless shame. No, that's not it. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself in being in his son as his son experienced that shameful, horrific death, absolute death. Some people who have died know what it is to die. Nobody knows what it is to die the absolute death except Jesus. And so far, nobody knows by experience what it's like to be in a resurrected, transfigured human body of flesh except Jesus. So... Jesus handed himself over to us for us in an unparalleled self-giving love. It's unparalleled, but it can be demonstrated in you and me as we serve one another by love. Jesus was justified. 1 Timothy 3.16, compared with Romans 1.17, he's the righteous one. And all of humanity are justified in him. Because when he died, he died for all, and so all died. And when he arose, he came to new life for all, and all were raised with him. So in Christ, all are made alive, as in Adam, all die. The lamb at the heart of Romans. Compares with the slaughtered and standing lamb at the heart of Rev the book, at the heart of John's gospel, at the heart of of Genesis at the heart of the entire revealed word and will of God. I determined to know nothing among you 
but Jesus Christ and him having been crucified, but now standing. That's the gospel that will pull you outside yourself to stand before God in faith. But it's a faith that works by love. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to be together again and to allow your word through your spirit to speak lucidly and clearly of your son. We thank you, Father, that once again, you, your son and spirit are all present in the message of the gospel. For when the gospel is truly preached, the presence of the triune God accompanies the preaching of that gospel. And we're so grateful for it, Father. Awaken those who proclaim your gospel to the truths that you are awakening us to. And wake us up, Father, to realities that are far greater than we've ever entertained even. As you continue to transform our thinking in this juncture of the ages, that we may actually be grateful for the pain and the grace of this time because you've allowed us to live at the juncture of these two ages, privileged us, therefore, to be identified experientially so richly with your son. 